I want to jump in today and talk to you about a new series of messages that I'm starting. Uh, and the title of these messages are God Breathed. Trusting the Bible in an age of uncertainty. We live in a day and age where things of biblical nature, of spiritual nature, are being questioned. Being questioned. I want you to take your study notes and I want you to take the key question that I've added and I put it at the very bottom, but this morning I'm gonna shake it all up and change it all up on you. And I want you to fill in the last statement first. If you don't have study notes, if you didn't receive a bulletin on your way in, that's okay. Just take a piece of paper, maybe even take the connect card right there in the seat back pocket and just fill these out. I really would love for you to, to take notes today because I think they're gonna be helpful for you uh, in the weeks to come. The question is, what will be the authority for my life. On whose authority do you come here? On whose authority do you live? On what you have learned? On whose authority will you live in your life? And I believe we can live on the authority of God's holy word. And I want to take you through a journey from this week all even stretching out towards Christmas on why we can trust the Bible and the value of the Bible and the power of the Bible in changing lives. And, and by the end of this, you're going to even be able to see you're going to be able to see uh, how to really study a Bible passage. And you're going to be able to see how to integrate scriptures into your daily life. I'm hoping that by the time this series is done, you will be able to jumpstart 2016 with an unbelievably foundational understanding of God's word that will catapult you into a beautiful year of reading the Bible for all it's worth, understanding the Bible for all it's worth in 2016, that it would be the year of the Bible for you the year of God's holy word. I want to start though by talking to you about real value. Values are what, how we behave, what we hold most dear and I want to talk to you about value. Is this something that ought to be valued in our life? These scriptures, God's holy word, is it something that ought to be valued? I want to start with a story in Fresno, California. You'd think I'd start with Jerusalem when you're talking about the Bible, but no, we're gonna go all the way back to Fresno. <laughs> gonna take it to Fresno, California. Just a few short years ago, there was a guy by the name of Bob that was in a junk shop. Anybody ever had to do a garage sale at your house? Oh, that is of the devil. Garage sales are the, you know, it's fine to go look at them and buy stuff and get a good deal to have to organize those suckers. No, that is like unbiblical. You should not, you know, those things are, are tough to do. Well, in Fresno, California at a garage sale, at a junk sale, a guy by the name of Bob found a picture. It was a Western picture and he was making a man cave and he thought, I'm just going to take this picture. I'm going to buy it. Bought it for $2.10. Here's the picture that he bought. I don't know if you guys can get a close-up or not. This is the picture that he bought. I'm just kidding. Actually, that's my grandpa, and that's my Uncle Donnie, and they're at Still Your Dollar City. I mean, S Silver Dollar City. Uh, they, they, they dressed up like in the 90s. They dressed up in the 90s, and they took this picture. But it looks off, you know, it looks old. It looks black and white sepia tones. It looks like, you know, Western wear. But that is actually just a, you know, that is probably in an arcade with Pac-Man in the background. They just made it to look old. That's not the real picture. The picture Bob bought at the junk sale was this picture. 
This picture is of two men. One is of particular importance playing a game of croquet. Just so happens that one of these gentlemen is a man we might know as Billy the Kid. $2.10 bought this picture and this, this is now valued at over $5 million. That's kind of a return on investment, wouldn't you believe? Everybody's like on Friday going to go garage sailing again, you know? <laughs> you got any old Western pictures, you know? Uh, can you believe the value? Can you believe the value that this picture is bringing to a guy who only made a $2.10 investment? What makes this so valuable? Let me give you the scripture. What makes this more than just a book, more than just leather and, and, and silk pages? You know, this Bible I've had for 21 years. I got this when I was 15 years old. My mom wrote my name in the front cover. I have written sermon notes in the back of it. When I was commissioned and ordained as a minister of the gospel, I wrote the sermon notes of that sermon preached over me. I have all kinds of stuff in here. I took it out because I didn't want to lose it. But when, before we even had a child, I wrote a note to my daughter who I'm going to give to her at her 16th birthday. And that note has been tucked away in this Bible. I just saw it just this last week. And on her 16th birthday, I'm going to give her that little note that I wrote before she was ever born. What makes this valuable? Is it my mom gave it to me? No. What makes it valuable is that it's tw over 21 years old? No. What makes it valuable is this. That's not it. Let me tell you what the historians say. This is what happens when you go without notes. Here's what the historian said about Billy the Kid. When we first saw the photograph, we were understandably skeptical. An original Billy the Kid photo is the holy grail of Western Americana. They take this seriously. Look what he says. We had to be certain about this photo. We could answer and verify where, when, how, and why this photo was taken. Simple resemblance is not enough in a case like this. So much more that simple resemblance of God's word and the real word of God. Simple resemblance is not enough. We need to know it is God's holy word. And here's where we get it. The value of the Bible. All scripture is what? Would you say it out loud? God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed. What does God breathed even mean? Well, right now you are hearing the breath of Jeremy Yancey. The breath of Jeremy Yancey comes into my lungs. It moves out across my vocal cords and through incredible, incredible reality of humanity, those vocal cords move and make noises and, and harmonies and, and, and chords that you familiarize as uh, uh, words. And my breath is now translated as words. The word of God, the word of Jeremy is the breath of Jeremy. And the word of God is the breath of of God. All scripture, the Bible says, all scripture is God breathed. That's what makes it valuable. It's breathed by God through authors to us. Now, Bible says in Psalm 119, all of your commands can be trusted. 
So the Bible says not only is it God's breath to us, but that everything in this Bible can be trusted. And here's what I think we need to ask about that. Here's the question I think we need to bring up, and it's this. Here it is. You ready for it? Really? Really? This thing we hold in our hand, it's a good book, but, but, but really? Is it God's breathed word? It, all the commands can be trusted. Are you, are you sure? Really, it can be trusted? And you know, really is kind of the question of today's age. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of people are saying, really, the Bible? Really, a virgin birth? Really, you know, Jesus and humanity and heaven? And really, come on now. And wouldn't you know it that in the 21st century, we are dealing with the question, really? But do you know that question is the oldest question? In fact, the Bible is being asked today, is the Bible fiction or fact? Is the Bible, how true is the Bible? These are, these are really, really questions right here on Time Magazine. But see, the current issue, write this down, with the Bible is, is really the oldest issue. The whole idea of really is not a current issue. It is the oldest issue. The very first question we hear from the devil himself in the garden. We're introduced to the enemy in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And the very first question that the serpent makes out, the very first question that the enemy asks is this. Look at this scripture. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, would you say it out loud with me? Did God really say? Did God really say what you're saying he said? Did God really? And the very first conversation we have with the enemy is a conversation used to try and convince you or try and maneuver your faith in a God who speaks. And today, that same enemy has not gone far from his bag of tricks. He would love nothing more than to try and convince you to distrust or devalue God and what he has to say. It's the same old, same old. And so let's talk about the ancient lie remix. Here's how you hear it. We heard it in Genesis 3. Did God really say that you know don't eat of that fruit or you be like this and, and here's the ancient lie remix here's how we hear it today the bible has radically changed over time i mean it's got so many changes and how can you really know that what you hold in your hand is like what they had back then i mean there's been so many councils and so many of this and men's men's hand has been on it that can you really i mean it's changed so much over the over the course of time that you can't really know you can't really know that this is what was meant to be given to us a couple thousand years ago after jesus came died resurrected and ascended you just really can't know because the bible's just radically changed b the Bible constantly contradicts itself. You can hear this all the time. The Bible contradicts itself and they will pull different statements. Like for example, in Mark, the book of Mark, the, the, the story goes that, that a demon-possessed man came to Jesus, went to Jesus. But in Luke, it says two men 
that were demon-possessed went to Jesus. Oh, the controversy, the contradiction. Mark said one man and Luke said two. Listen to me. I can get five of you going on a hunting trip or a fishing trip. None of you are going to say the fish was this big and all of you agree. Right? You're going to have vantage points. You know you caught fish. You know you went on the trip. You know this is the deal. But part of, part of telling a beautiful story with a group of people is the multiple camera angles that you see. And so Mark, he condenses everything down and gives you just the nuggets. He gives you just the truth. I mean, it's short, sweet, to the point. Luke is like a physician. He's like a doctor. He's like, oh, give me all this information. And so Mark says, da-da-da-da-da-da. And Luke goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
put the tap on and you got water if you pay your bills. You just got water. It's a utility. What we run the risk of is that information now, information is becoming utilitarian and not a commodity. And so you hear a sermon and it's like a cup of water put into the ocean. Of all the other information that you're hearing from all other sources. And nowadays, nowadays, all you got to be is brett777 at yahoo.com and have a blog and all of a sudden, you got some followers, and they're saying, well, I think Brett777 at yahoo.com had it right when he said this about the Bible. And you take the Bible and Time Magazine, and you start adding them like equal, or you take the Bible and the Apostle Paul and Brett777 at yahoo.com, and you say, well, I don't know. And anybody, a 21-year-old who still lives with his mom and dad can write a blog and you can read it and say, oh, well, I guess that does make sense. Everybody watches one channel, one discovery episode about Jesus on the National Geographic and all of a sudden everybody's a flipping Bible scholar. Come on, that is good preaching. So, so what we have to do it's not just sit there, la, 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 and let all the dumb blogs rise to the top. Listen, I have invested myself. I've invested, I've had men in my home that I've invested in. And because of a couple of books and some uneducated philosophy and, and scriptural misunderstanding and, 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 and mis a lack of comprehension, all of a sudden, they're questioning the existence of hell and the authority of Scripture because blogger Bobby Joe said it this way. What makes this any different than all the blogs you're going to read? I hope that the few minutes we have left, I can help raise the value of the Word of God in your life. Reasons I can value and trust the Bible. Reasons you can, too. Number one, the Bible is thematically unified. Listen close. 40 plus authors, 66 books, written over the course of 1,500 years in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, on three different continents, I can't get my family of four to agree with where we should go have lunch out at food trucks today. But 40 authors, 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, 66 books, and their message is unified. It's a unified message. Now listen, furthermore, furthermore, they're not talking about a message about dodgeball. Look, I guess you could get 40 different people from different places that could give you a rough about estimate of how you play the game dodgeball. You know, you duck, dive, dodge, dip, and dodge. The five rules of dodgeball. Look them up. Over the course of 1,500 years, though, I guarantee you 40 authors and 66 different books on dodgeball are going to give you different perspectives and not even have the same theories. And we're not talking about dodgeball. These authors take on the greatest, strongest, most important reality of humanity. And that is a creator God and a creation whom he loves. 
a deity becoming man and dying for humanity as the ultimate sacrifice. It takes on topics of morality and ethic, on love. It takes on the realities of marriage and parenting and divorce and sexuality. It doesn't just talk about the little game of checkers or dodgeball. This is a serious deal. And through all of this, the word of God, these authors aren't stepping on each other's toes. They're not calling each other out. They, they are not contradicting one another. They are beautifully weaving together a tapestry of unity of a God who loved this world so much. He gave his one and only son. It's the story of the Bible. It's thematically unified. Number two, the Bible is textually accurate. I mean, can we really? I mean, who knows the kind of copies, and they didn't have Xerox machines back then, so they literally had to copy word for word. Like people, humans, imperfect people, had to take one copy and make another copy and make a copy and make another copy. I mean, come on, surely. Really? Really? Can you really trust what's in this thing? Well, let's go about back way, 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 way back to July 6, 1933. Some of you are like, I was seven, <laughs> you know. July 6, 1933, anybody know the importance of that date? You probably don't unless you are an unbelievable baseball junkie. If you a baseball history junkie, July 6, 1933 was the date of the very first All-Star game. The very first All-Star game played against the American League and the National League in Chicago. On this special day, there was a mom, or there was a, there was a soon-to-be husband and wife, this engaged couple. She got tickets to the game for her and her, her fiancé, soon-to-be husband. They went and they sat in the right field. They bought the tickets for a dollar and 10 cents. Dollar 27 if you wanted to get closer. Dollar and 10 cents. They bought two tickets to the very first All-Star game. They brought all kinds of the All-Stars, including one that wasn't that good of an All-Star anymore, but his name was pretty big. His name, you might know him as Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth, in the third inning, on the fourth pitch, hit a home run. And not only did he home run, but this, this soon-to-be husband and wife were sitting in the right field, and this ball went into right field. And everybody clamored, but this woman who worked at J.C. Penney's and scrounged it up enough, $2.20 for her and her soon-to-be husband to get together, her husband caught that home run ball. Two weeks later, Babe Ruth was on tour at, in the same city with a different team and he connected with the manager and through an unbelievable miracle, really, he was able to take that ball and get it signed by Babe Ruth himself, the very first home run ever hit in an all-star game and a home run by Babe Ruth to boot. That's the ball, Babe Ruth home run ball. I know this story because a fellow pastor of mine Friends of our family through an, an, another, another acquaintance. This was his grandma and grandpa. His grandma and grandpa were the soon-to-be-married couple at, at the stadium. Now, here's where the plot thickens. His grandma and grandpa passed away, and that ball was handed down. His mom had the ball, and his mom got very sick. So they began to do some research on the ball to help pay for some medical bills. And they went to the uh, commissioner of the, hall, uh, of the Baseball Hall of Fame, and they said, how much would this ball be worth? And here's what the commissioner told him to start. They said, you know what? 
Chris, it's a neat thing. We, we, we authenticate it is a Babe Ruth signature. It's Babe Ruth. But it, you just got a good story. Okay, we can prove it's the ball. That's fine. But you can't prove that it's the home run ball from the all-star game that Babe Ruth hit. It's just a good story. As they were cleaning out the attic of their grandma and grandpa, they came across a scrapbook a few years later. The commissioner of Hall of Fame baseball said, you might get about 10 to 13,000 at public auction for this ball. Because again, it's a, it's a good story. It's worth something because of the signature, 10 to $15,000. But then they went through a scrapbook that his grandpa had had and they found a ticket stub that said section T, seat 161. And you can go back to the score books, the stat book, and you can find that Babe Ruth hit the home run ball in the first all-star game right into section T, right around those seats. Oh, but it goes even further. A newspaper clipping, a newspaper reporter found out in their hometown of Gary, Indiana, that, the, that, a, that a local man, Gary Mann, on other end of Ruth's clout in Game of Century. And this newspaper article, dated just a couple days after the, the All-Star game, quotes and gives the man's name, the husband and wife soon to be, their name in the story and the Babe Ruth ball that they caught. They also have an affidavit of, a, of an attorney saying this is an authenticated ball. All of a sudden, the, no, I'm going to get passionate here in a second. Three pieces of paper. Three pieces of paper turned a ten dollars to $15,000 ball into an $815,000 ball sold at the All-Star Hall of Fame auction in 2006. In the brochure that had all the pictures and everything, there was a quote from the commissioner of the Baseball Hall of Fame, and here's what he said. Simply an incredible rarity, which is, without question, without question, without question, the most documented vintage home run ball of significance ever in history. And we're not talking about thousands of years ago. We're talking about 1933, the most documented rarity in baseball history. Let's talk about the documentation of the Bible for a moment. You've probably heard of the name Homer's Iliad. You also know the Odyssey is another book. The Iliad, Homer. You, you, if you've been in any kind of, of classes, you've probably heard this mentioned in literature. Homer's Iliad. It was written in 800 BC, BC before Christ. 800 years before Christ, it was written. Our earliest copy that we have of Homer's Iliad is in 400 BC. If you do the math, that's 400 years from the time it was written to the time we have the first copy. Do you know how many copies we have of Homer's Iliad? 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. And it is a proven literary phenomenon. It's, a, it's beautiful. It is, it is, clou it is it's talked about. It's, it's promoted. 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. Anybody ever heard of the name Plato? The philosopher Plato? The earliest copies of Plato written in 400 BC. But you have to wait 1,300 years to AD 900 
before you can find, before there's any proof of Plato's writings. A copy is earliest copy you can find is 1300 years old and it was found in AD 900, dated AD 900. We have seven copies of that work. The same philosopher professor that in one sound of his voice is going to say there is no God can also be, sound, be heard saying, well, you know the works of Plato. And really the only proof we have of the beginning works of Plato are seven copies. Let's talk about the New Testament. The New Testament was written in between AD 50 and 100. Our earliest copy is only 50 years from that date. It was written in a time where many of the eyewitnesses still would have been alive. You can't write a book about all these miracles and somebody walking on water and thousands and thousands of people being fed with the Jerusalem Happy Meal and not have a bunch of other people saying, ah, no, 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 no. It was written early enough to where there should have been, if it was all fake, if it was all a story, if it was all fairy tale, and it was taking the world by storm, somebody ought to have had to have stepped up and said, this is junk. It was early enough. 8200, by 8200, only 150 years later, we have found parchments, papers, papers of the entire book, entire books of the New Testament. In 8250, the entire New Testament, all of the New Testament. We have copies that are only 250 years, 150 years between the time. Now watch. By 8325, we have been able to find and have 5,600 copies of the New Testament. And by 8500, only 400 years later, we have confirmed over 24,600 copies. That's only 23,593 more documents than Plato. You can trust the Bible. Before I get to this one, understand how this thing was copied. You still with me so far? I don't want to nerd you to death today, okay? <laughs> Seeing some of you like, oh, pocket, you know, you have a, you know, pocket protector. I'm not trying to nerd you to death. Why don't you stick with me? Will you, will you stick with me a few more minutes? Come on, you need to know this. You need to know this. That yes, the B-I-B-L-E, it's that's the book for me. I stand up on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But when people say, really? You can say, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, you can know. You can trust this. It's valuable. It's valuable. So... Because there's no Xerox machines, there are tribes, specific sects of tribes that were dedicated to the copying, the inscribing of God's holy word. And they looked at it as holy, holy. And so the Sepharim tribe was dedicated to copying word by word, not even word by word, letter by letter. The parchment would be a certain size. There would be this many words on the parchment. When they would copy this, they would sit down. They would ceremonially wash. They would sit down a certain kind of quill and a certain kind of ink. They would write. And they wouldn't copy the word and and and. They would copy A, A, N, 
N-D-D. They had such tight parameters of the holy word of God that they knew exactly how many A's were going to be in that. They knew the middle, le- the middle word of every page. And if you flipped over here and on page five of the papyrus, this word was in the middle, but on page five of your copy, there was a different word in the middle. You would have to wrinkle that up, throw it in the trash can and start over. They had unbelievably strict guidelines of how they would copy these manuscripts from one to the next. It went from the Seraphim tribe to the Talmudic tribe to the Masoretic tribe. They were dedicated. When, when they would write the name Yahweh, they kept the, the, they kept the, uh, the consonants out and, and they only wrote, wrote Y-H-W-H. They, they, they would not write out the whole name of God. They revered it so deeply. They also, every time they got up, they had to use a restroom. When they came back, they would ceremonial wash because they believed in what they were doing so deeply. When they would write the word of God, the name of God, they would not, they would use an older quill so as not to smudge with new ink the holy name of God. It's textually accurate. It can be trusted. I'm going to give you a little bit more evidence in a minute. Now this one is weird, okay? This one, especially you grow up in any kind of school. (laughs) Some of you, probably 80% of you have grown up in school. The Bible is scientifically accurate. What? Really? Scientifically accurate. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's stop and look at this. Look at this. The Bible's not a science textbook, okay? You don't read it to understand how to build a rocket, okay? That's not what it's meant for, okay? You don't, you don't read it to understand thermodynamics. It's, it's, but it's scientifically accurate. And if you think it's not scientifically accurate, A, you don't know the Bible. B, you don't know science. Because here's the deal. Science is always changing, I watched a movie with a doctor friend of mine just the other day. And as we were waiting in the previews, I said, hey, doc, what, how often is medical science changing? You know what he said? Every day. Every day, the way we treated some things, we're not treating it the same that we were treating it three months ago. There's new discoveries. There's new research. We're seeing things today that we didn't know a year ago. Science is changing. Guess what doesn't change? Truth. Truth is truth is truth. The truth is not going to change. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. The Bible was written in a time that had a bunch of scientific beliefs. Here's what I want to say to you. In 1861, the book 51 Incontrovertible Proofs that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate was written. By uh, 90 years later in 1951, every one of the 51 Incontrovertible Proofs was debunked. Every one of the incontrovertible proofs. We know it's the word of God, not because of just what is in it, but because of what isn't in these pages. Write that down. We know because of what isn't in these pages. Now, here's what I mean by scientifically accurate. Now, follow me on this. You have heard this because this used to be a scientific fact. What was it? The earth is flat. It was believed by the scientists of the day the earth is flat. You can't go too far in the ocean. You're like, whoop. You'll fall off of it. You're like, fall off the earth. It's flat. And that was the modern day belief up until Magellan and even Columbus. There was still doubts about crossing the ocean blue in 1492. Because in 1492, yet how is it? 
that Isaiah 40, 800 years before Jesus was even on the scene, Isaiah pins, God is enthroned about the sphere of the earth. I mean, you would think that if everybody thought it was flat, that Isaiah would say, our God is enthroned about the flat pancake of the earth. Here's another one. The earth has to be held up. I mean, in, 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 in uh, Greek mythology, we have this, this man named Atlas. You've seen pictures of, holds the earth on his shoulders. Ooh, I'm gonna preach. Jesus holds the world in his hands, by the way. But anyway, Atlas holds the world in his shoulders. It's a heavy weight. It's a heavy weight. Jesus holds the whole world in his hands. Anyway, I'm not even gonna get, just, just listen. Just listen. Even, even in, in, in Hinduism, the belief that, that uh, 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 elephants held up the earth and that those elephants, when, when there was an earthquake, it was the movement of elephants and that, that they were even standing on a, a cosmic tortoise. Egyptians for centuries believed. And listen, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's home. He had the best private schooling guaranteed. All right? The Egyptians for centuries believed that the earth was held up by five columns. And if Moses was schooled by the Egyptians, and, by, and he was, don't you think, wouldn't it have made sense, the same guys who built the pyramids, that they would have said, no, 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 Moses, the earth is held on pillars. But that didn't find its way. Atlas didn't find its way into the Bible. You can trust the Bible for a lot of things that aren't even in there. Because here's what it says in Job 26. God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on what? Something's got to hold the earth up. We, be we believed for millennia. And yet it was in Job already. The stars could be counted. The stars could be counted. In fact, in 150 BC, hip, <laughs> hip said, <laughs> hip said, Dude, everybody, dude, I've been checking it out. There's 1,022 stars, y'all. That's what 150 BC, Hipparchus said. Ptolemy came later in 8300, 450 years later, and Ptolemy said, no, 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 no. Hip doesn't know what he's talking about. Here's the deal. 1,026. <laughs> I found four more. And yet, had they just opened the God-breathed word, they would have seen in Jeremiah 33, the number of stars are infinite. Oh, do you value? Can you find some value and some trust in the word of God? Too much blood makes you sick. Our first president died of a throat disease, but that was really the secondary issue. He became under care because of this nasty throat sickness, and the doctor of the time believed in bloodletting, and if you've read any kind of history book, you know what bloodletting is. They believed that sickness was in the blood, and that you had to get rid of some blood in order for them to feel better. So if you would bleed them, then obviously the sickness would go away with the blood. That was common medical science for centuries even up to our first president they bloodled him of 32 ounces of blood over three different times the two days before he died now we get blood transfusions 
It's like, no, 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 no. But yet, back over in Leviticus, I think they kind of knew something. The life of every creature is in its blood. 25% of Europe died of bubonic plague. 25%. This whole group right here. Sorry, guys. (laughs) You're done. They would have those with the plague in the hospital next to someone who had just delivered a baby. They did not understand infectious disease until Louis Pasteur says, there's like some bacteria and germs and junk. And so they didn't, they didn't do something very important that even in the Old Testament, listen, there's some crazy stuff that you're going to read. But God is trying to develop a civilization in a wilderness that they don't know about blood. They don't understand disease. God wanted to secure the nation of Israel so much that he gave them all these rules in the wilderness. They'd be like, why, why should we if you, you know, a, a woman on her period, a woman on her period had to stay away from everybody else for the blood issue, not for, for any, you know, attitude reasons. They had to be, they had to be, oh boy, I'm in, uh, Oh, boy. They're like, quarantine them. Quarantine them because they are getting all up in it. No, there was something about the importance. I don't know if I'm going to recover. There's something about the importance of, of quarantine. Look what it says in Leviticus. Put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. Leviticus 13, 4. They didn't even burn the clothes in the bubonic plague. They reused the clothes. They reused clothes. Even in Leviticus, you can read, burn the clothes of someone who's infected. We can trust this thing. Proverbs 30. It says every word of God is flawless. And I like to believe that it is. Reasons I should value and trust the Bible. Number four, the Bible is archaeologically confirmed. I'm going to take a moment and let you try and write out archaeologically. Archaeologically, you know, for centuries, the challenge was there's no real proof of the Israeli monarchy. You know, Saul, David, Solomon. That, that's just hocus pocus. That was made up by Israel. There's no documented proof that there was even a nation of Israel. It's kind of like this, this rag, you know, ragamuffin group of just, you know, people and the tribes. And they never really solidified. They didn't have an army. They didn't, there was no such thing as a Goliath situation. Now, all that, there's really no proof of the Israeli monarchy until 1868. And the Misha stone is found. And the Misha stone, the Misha scribe is Misha, king of Moab. And there are 34 lines about a battle that the Moabite kingdom had with someone from, I don't know, the house of David. It was only until the 1860s. And this shows, wait a second, maybe there is Israeli monarchy. Oh, and then later in 1963, we end up finding the Tel Dan inscription, which also has 13 lines of inscription, and it strategically, specifically documents a battle in 2 Kings 33 where the house of David fell. 
Scholars would say there's really no Belshazzar because in the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about the final king of Babylon before Babylon was destroyed was the name Belshazzar. But everybody knows that it wasn't Belshazzar, it was Nabonidus. That, you know, the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus, not Belshazzar. There's no such thing as a king called Belshazzar until... In 1853, they find something called the Nabonidus Cylinder, and it looks something exactly like that. And all of these different inscriptions are verbiage and information, and the, fi the final statement is a prayer of Nabonidus himself. And you know what he's praying over? He's praying over his son, Belshazzar. There's no such thing as a Pontius Pilate. No such thing as Pontius Pilate. I mean, the guy who, who basically said, give us Jesus or give us Barabbas, and they chose Barabbas, and Jesus was crucified, and the guy washed his hands. There's not even proof that Pontius existed until the amphitheater dedicated to Caesar Augustus in Caesarea, Israel, and I've walked there and been there at the amphitheater until later this column was found as they excavated the, the, the amphitheater and there it says on the column dedicated to Caesar Augustus by Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah. I don't know, I'm a little excited this morning. And then a shepherd in 1946, a shepherd boy in 1946, anybody born before 46? Come on, anybody? No? All right, young, young bunch today. 1946, a shepherd boy chasing a goat in the Dead Sea Hills, chased a, chased a goat through a cave and threw the rock at the goat, and instead of the rock ricocheting from one rock to the next, the sound of shattering pottery filled the ears of that little shepherd boy. And what we know today is the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. 40,000 parchments, all of the Old Testament. 40,000 parchments from a cave in the Dead Sea, papyrus, all laid out. And when they found the 40,000, the complete Old Testament, except the book of Esther, was found. The complete Old Testament, you can see it. You can see it at the at Jerusalem Museum. It, you have to walk through this dark hallway. They don't allow you to speak. It's a holy thing. You walk through a dark hallway into a dimly lit cylinder. It's a room. It's in a circle. And all underneath this glass are papyrus of the word of God. 40,000 different pieces. They found the entire book, the entire book of Isaiah. Every single word in Isaiah, they found it. It was 30, it was 24 feet long. It was 10 inches high and it was inscribed and it's dated at 150 BC. The entire book of Isaiah. And can I tell you something? When you compare the book of Isaiah, found 150 BC in 1946 in a cave in the Dead Sea. When you look at your Isaiah, there are 17 letter differences from the papyrus scroll to what you hold in your hand. 
11 of the 17 were because we spell that word honor different. Three of the other changes is because a three-letter word for the word light was added at the end of a scripture and says, and they will see. And they added the word light. Doesn't change the context, doesn't change the authority, doesn't change. Those are the differences between 150 BC and what you hold in your hand. This isn't a shrine. This isn't God. This isn't God. Because God can't be contained in a book. He's bigger than a book. But these are words of God. These are the breath of God speaking to you and speaking to me just like I'm speaking to you today. 5,000 known biblical sites today. How many have been excavated so far? Only 200. And I believe in faith that they begin to excavate the other 4,800 sites. We're not going to have to shake in our boots. Because God's word is God's word. And all his commands are true. Write it down, number five. The Bible has survived all attacks. There is no other book in history. Are you with me this morning? No other book in history that has been dissected, devalued, tried to be debunked, debated, destroyed. There's not, there's not a bunch of book burnings for Time Magazine. But there have been civilizations that have wanted to eradicate this earth of the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. And yet somehow, it survived. Do you know why? It's not because of somebody hiding some pottery with some papyrus in the Dead Sea Hills. It's because God is going to preserve His own Word. God himself, the creator of the cosmos, is going to protect his word. Jesus, his one and only son, said it like this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We are one generation away from forgetting the Bible. You can see it all through the book of First and Second Kings. One king got up and did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they even forgot. They left. They lost the book. And another king comes up and they trust God again. And then another one comes up and they forget. We are one generation away. We are one generation away of forgetting about the book. But until heaven and earth pass away, God is not going to let the book, his words, pass away. He's got it under his watchful eye. I end with this. A guy named Bob in Fresno, California finds an old western picture and buys it for $2.10. He doesn't realize what he has in his hands. What made that picture valuable was not quality of it. 
What made the picture valuable is not the age of it. What made the picture valuable is not where he found it. You know what else? What makes that picture valuable is not the photographer. We don't even know who the photographer is. What makes this word so valuable is the same thing that makes that picture valuable. Plus one. It's who's in the picture. And for this one, it's not only who's in the picture, but who the real author is. The B-I-B-L-E, I stand upon the word of God. And I hope you will too, because you can. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you've been struggling with belief and you've been struggling with doubt, can I tell you, this sermon strengthened my faith. There are times where I see evil in the world and I see questions and my loved ones die when we prayed over them. And I say, oh, really, really? But in this exploration, and I have just been confirmed more and more in my spirit. The word of God is true and he's available for you. He's real. If you've been struggling, but you know today, man, I wanna, I wanna hang true to the word of God and Jesus is the center of my life. And I've not been doing that, but I want to. I, I, I've been my faith has been strengthened today and I wanna make sure Jesus is the center of my life. If that's you, would you just raise a hand? Yeah, 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 yeah. All over the place. All over the place. Let me pray over you. Father, I pray for everyone who struggled, me included, that we would trust you and trust your God-breathed word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on a cross for us. It's not just a clever story. It's truth. And truth doesn't change. And so I trust you today, Lord. And I pray that we all would trust you. Would you stand with me this morning, everybody in the auditorium? Father, we are going to take you at your word. And we're not going to let this be the generation that loses sight of the power of the God-breathed scriptures. So we're going to protect it. We're going to guard it. We're going to know it. We're going to defend it. But Lord, all the defending in the world, all the defending we can muster up and going to match you preserving your word. And for that, we are so grateful today. May we stand on your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Everybody said amen. Amen.